are back, continuing our discussion with Lieutenant Commander Ted Robinson about the fighting on Okinawa. The worst man I had on that entire <laughs> ship was Kelly. Kelly was a seaman second class, which is the lowest rank in the entire United States Navy. When I looked at his record, I found out he was a dead-end kid from New York City, from the Lower East Side, from the Bowery. They don't get any worse than that. I'm from New York. I know all about those people. I had no record that he ever had a mother or a dad. He had lived for a while under the Brooklyn Bridge. He had been kicked out of two or three foster homes. And finally, somebody had, a, had taken care of him. He had a police record and so on. And I have to tell you that the third night we put to sea, way back in new way back in the united states suddenly everybody was missing stuff all the crew <laughs> from their lockers from kelly and they so i had an all ships inspection and you know where all the stuff was it was in kelly's locker he had gotten it all and <laughs> so i had found this guy was a real problem and so what happened i couldn't promote him because he couldn't read or write he couldn't even pass the test and, you know, promotion is very fast in war. And uh, I was able to promote almost everybody on that ship but Kelly. And finally, I had to promote the yes, coxswain of one of those little LCVPs. I had to promote him to a bosun's mate. And that was too high a rank to just run one of these little LCVPs. And Kelly had been the bow hook. The only thing he ever knew how to do was throw the line over <laughs> when we went into a pier. <laughs> So I had called when we got out to Okinawa, and we still had, we had promoted everybody but Kelly. I called in Chief Sparks, who was head of the deck division, and uh, uh, Lieutenant Jones, who was head of the deck division. And I said, you know, I want to give this guy some motivation. He's kind of useless. We've never can promote him. I'm going to make him coxswain of that little LCVP. And the old chief said, Skipper, you're making a big mistake. <laughs> that kid is going to let you down. And I said, no, my job is to build men, not beat them down. I want to give this kid a chance. Well, what I found happened, when I gave him that little LCVP, he got up there and he, he'd have knockoff at 1600, four in the afternoon. Not with Kelly. He'd be up there day and night working on that thing. He was repainting it. He was shining up the brass. He was up there. So I remember, I thought, oh, that little bastard. I Excuse the expression, <laughs> audience. But, you know, he's a typical dead-end New York kid. Mm -hmm. He's painting all the sides you can see from the ship. But the outboard of that boat that's hanging over the water, that's going to look like hell, and the inside is probably a garbage can. So I again called an all-ships evolution, and I climbed up there, and I inspected that boat. And I got inside it. My God, I couldn't believe it. All the lines were curled. All the brass was polished. You could eat off the deck. It, looked, <laughs> it made my ship look like hell. The kid had found something where he was proud of. So he was coxswain of one of those LSTs that I put in the water on the windward side. I had him back there pushing on the stern, 
and I had my real reliable guy that was really a coxswain rate pushing on the bow or ready to push on the bow when we finally got off the beach. Well, it didn't take a half an hour. It took about an hour to get that last truck loaded. We finally got everybody aboard, and we backed off. We let the water out of the van, and we backed off, and immediately the Japanese started to come down the road because they could see that they were losing their target. And all my gunners opened up on them, blew them out of sight. And off we went, and the minute that I pulled that bow off the beach, it did exactly what I knew it would do. That bow started to drift around, held up by the anchor at the end, which couldn't drift, and the bow was swinging right around for the rocks. We were goners. These guys were pushing, but as we backed up, they were losing their purchase. The ship would back up, and they'd have to pull bow off and hit the bow right, again. Right. And I had the one on the forward trying to push the bow to starboard the way I wanted to go, and the one at the stern wasn't doing anything at all while the anchor was still pushing. And finally, when the anchor got off, I thought, well, this might save us. What happened? The whole ship started to drift then. The wind was pushing the stern, everything. And the little boat in the back that was trying to push the, the stern around was useless. And the one in the front was getting just pushed where with the, with the whole front of the ship was being pushed. And I knew I was... I was through and then I thought we have one chance and I grabbed the PA system we had a foghorn you know that we could talk to shouter and I screamed down the coxswain of the little LCVP that was at the stern I said for God's sake save us I said come around to the bow and smash into the bow of my LST as hard as you can if you can stop just stop for a minute, the swing, we maybe will have chance to make the turn. It's all you can do. And the word came up from the stern, aye, aye, Captain, and it was in a New York <laughs> accent. The guy you were assured when you needed him was going to let you down, Kelly. It was the lowest rank, yeah. least responsible, smartest, wise-ass guy on the ship. And I realized Kelly would be smart enough to take that LST around, the, that little LCVP, the little boat, around the stern, disappear in the darkness of the rain and the wind, and go to the far side of the inlet, away from the Japanese, away from where the ship would go on the rocks. Just pull on that thing, and later on could say, well, I was trying to save it, and I hit one of the rocks, and here I was over here. And he would be the one that would live. And it didn't help any when old Chief Sparks would said, <laughs> Chief, Captain, someday that kid is going to let you down. Old Sparks looked at me. He was up on the flying bridge by that time. He looked at me, and I thought, oh, my God. Anyway, the ship kept drifting, and Kelly, the noise of his engine disappeared, and all you heard were the rain and the wind. We're drifting towards certain destruction. And then I heard over the wind and over the rain, Kelly is coming like crazy. He had gone way down to pick up speed. He was coming like a maniac right for the bow of that ship. And I knew he was going to die. These little boats are wood. They're wooden, 36 feet long. 
if I if I could show a picture on the radio, the, the size of these steep, big steel hulls of an LST swinging towards you, weighing tons and tons, is certain death. And I thought, my God. And then I thought, oh, I know what that little kid's going to do. He's just going to come right for the bow and then swing around the bow, and he's just going to keep going right out the <laughs> right out the channel, and we'll be gone. That's that's that New York type. And all the crew was cheering, and all the soldiers were cheering when they saw that. They, they knew by then we were lost. And they saw this kid coming for the bow, and they were all cheering, and I thought, oh, my God, he's going to let us all down. We're all going to die. And I, frankly, I looked at my, my binoculars, and I could see his face. It was bouncing up and down. It was the same face I used to see of my T, PT boat crews. You know, every night when we would, we, we would go out every third night usually in PTs, and every, every third night somebody would die. And I would go to the briefing unit underground in, in, my, in PTs, and this was at, at uh, actually Munda, just north of Guadalcanal in the Georgia campy. And I would get orders whether we were going out that night or whether we could stay in possible some safety. And I remembered when I came out to the crew and I said, wind them up, which meant start the engines. I would see their face fall because they knew one of them was going to die at least. And then I'd see their chins go up and they were going to go anyway. And I saw that same face on Kelly. He knew he was going to die, but he was going to do it. He was going to show me he had been come somebody and he smashed into that bow so hard i wish i could show a model of an lst but an lst is a football field away from the bow that the flying bridge where i was is way up in the air way up high on the stern of the ship and that entire it shook way way back there he hit so boom it hit and i could feel the thing and the Suddenly we stopped, and I went full astern on my starboard engine, flank speed ahead on my port engines, just as I stopped, and I just were able to swing just past, just missed that island. And all the Japanese came rushing down, and all the soldiers kneeled down, and they all were ready to fire, and all my guns went. Everybody was cheering. We knew we had made it. And when the Japanese came down the beach, they just blew them off the beach. I think they killed every one of them. And I was the only guy that looked astern, and I looked down, and there's Kelly. A whole bow of that ship had been caved in, the whole front of the, the little LCVP. He had been at the stern as coxswain. He had been thrown clear the length of the ship up on the top of the engine cowling. His face was above water, but his arm was hanging down. I could see his face was a mass of blood. I later found his nose had been broken, his teeth were all broken. And his arm was all unbroken. I don't know how many places it was hanging over the engine cowling. And I knew he was probably dead. And nothing I could do, nothing I could do. That boat is going to sink sooner or later. And if he if didn't sink, what? Other Japanese were left would kill him, bayonet him to death, which they did for their own wounded, incidentally. 
And I couldn't stop. I had, for every one of him, there were all these guys dying on my ship. I said to the Army Major, I'm going to pull out of range of the Japanese, and I'm going to stop and let the one little LCVP that is still floating, that coxswain is still alive, the one that was on the safe side, and I'm going to have to wait for him to catch up with us. And then I got to shield him so we lift him by the Davids up on the ship. And then I said, I'm going to go back in and try to get Kelly. And the major said, Captain, I have at least 15 desperately wounded men on this ship. Are you going to give 15 lives to save one who's probably dead anyway? He said, you can't turn back. And I knew he was right. And just luckily, it took me probably a half an hour to actually maneuver that big ship out at the entrance to the harbor so the little LCVP would be sheltered from the incoming wind and waves. And over and over, I dropped the Davids and dropped the lines, and I sent men down and tried to hook them onto that boat that was bouncing all over. Right. And finally, we never got the boat up, but we got the man. We had left only one coxswain. We didn't have left leave the one man on each ship. And we got the, the coxswain of that ship and the boatswain's chair, and we lifted him, and we were ready to go. And just as I put my engines in the gear... I hear, put, 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 put. Here comes Kelly. What had happened as that ship started to, little boat started to fill with water and his arm that's hanging over the side became cold. And I guess maybe his face, maybe his head fell off to the side. He had been unconscious. He wasn't dead. He was unconscious. It brought him to. And he was a seaman enough to know that if he turned that boat around and went backwards, he could kind of keep the water kind of draining out of it. But that took great seamanship to Uh back up one of those little LCVPs and back it all the way up. And, of course, he'd go one side and then he'd go the other. And he backed that little thing up, and he got all the way up to our ship. And we again sheltered him with the ship, and we put a boatswain's chair over the side. And we lifted him aboard, and with his, his one arm was shattered, just shattered in seven places we found out later. But with the left arm, he saluted, and he did what you're supposed to be. When you come aboard a Navy ship, you say, Seaman Kelly, permission to come aboard, sir. That's what you say. And that's what he did with his left arm. And they said, not Seaman Kelly, Boson Kelly. You can make a spot promotion of two or three ranks to a man that actually saves an entire ship with our entire crew, with the entire army guy. Saved the whole damn thing. I gave him a spot promotion. He saved that entire ship, and I'll end the story with this. The war ended almost right after that. The minute Okinawa was finished, we Right soon after, we dropped that atomic bomb, and the war was over. And all of us were asked to try to get as many officers and men who could to stay on the ship after the war was over to bring the damn ships home. (laughs) And everybody wanted to go home right now. I had enough points to go home. 
And so all of us were asked, our crew and officers, to sign over to stay in the Navy. And I lined them all up, and the first guy to step forward and say, Sir, if they will have me with this withered arm, I would like to stay in the United States Navy. It was Kelly. And that little crew of 113 men, I got seven men to sign up, and the battleship Baltimore, which was anchored next to me, which had 1,400 men, got two guys, I think, to <laughs> sign over. They all wanted off because every man on my ship, a little ship mind, had a real responsible duty, including, thank God, Kelly. And Kelly said to me, Captain, I have nothing to go home to, but the Navy's been good to me. It's been my home. If I can stay in, I'd love to do so. And that is the bravest, most courageous act I ever saw in World War II by the least expected, <laughs> lowest-ranking guy in the United States Navy. End of story. A heck of a story, Ted, an inspiration to all of us. Sometimes if we think, you know, that uh, we're not cutting it, it's, it's still possible to rise to the occasion. Right. I'm so glad that we gave Kelly a break. And you know, that there are lots of Kellys in this world. <laughs> I've tried to do the same thing in business and everywhere I've been. Did you ever find out what became of him subsequently? I tried to trace him. I called Navy and I called records. You know how many Kellys there are in the Navy? <laughs> I'm sure quite a few. And, and I never could tr uh, trace them down. And it's, it's an absolute shame. And the worst thing I can tell you is that I never was able to, never was able to get him a medal. And I never got anything for this because it was a little divorced thing like you ran into little amphibious ships all the time. One little ship going in. No big admiral watching it. No, nobody to vouch except for the captain himself. The captain who had put his ship in great danger. And you know, here I get all this uh, ego building about Kennedy saving Kennedy, whereas Kelly saved me. <laughs> Kelly is the guy who should be back there in, in the Smithsonian, <laughs> or at least his picture should. I'm sure he's probably gone by now. I'm 91, and who knows? Well, it is a great read, Water in My Veins, The Pauper Who Helped Save a President. It's been a great pleasure to have you again tell us uh, some remarkable tales from the book, Ted. And let's come back in August uh, as we commemorate the end of the war and, and the post, uh, the reconstruction that took place in Europe and Japan. You were part of that as well, and so I think we should tell that, that story too. Well, thank you very much. All right, Ted. That's it for today's program. We look very forward to bringing you General Chuck Yeager in the weeks to come. I promise you, that will be worth your while. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week at the same time where we're going to talk a little bit about the upcoming June elections. Our thanks to Ted Robinson along with comedian Michael O'Connell. We'll perform a comedy fundraiser for the Muscular Dystrophy Association at 7 o'clock tonight. That's at Tommy T's Comedy and Dinner Theater, 12401 Folsom Boulevard, Rancho Cordova. Maybe we'll see you there. 